Hey everybody, Christ be with you. I hope you're having a good day. Today I want to talk to you a little bit about the general ideas of John Wesley. Just a couple. Mainly I want to talk about the Wesleyan quadrilateral, the Wesleyan idea of salvation, where the holiness doctrine comes from, and also the Wesleyan view on scriptural authority, which I think is a bit more nuanced in general than, than a fundamentalist view would be. So, first off, let's, let's talk about some general ideas from John Wesley. John Wesley is the founder of the Methodist Church. So you might have heard of the Wesleyan Holiness Movement. Now, the Wesleyan Holiness Movement is based around this idea that humans were meant to have a real change in their heart, the circumcision of the heart. So, after your justification through your initial act of faith in Christ, you're justified, now you're saved, then there would be another change of heart that would progressively make you more and more holy through God's grace. And you would undergo a full sanctification over time. Sanctification means cleansing. So let's contrast this because... These terms, until I looked into Wesleyan doctrine, these terms were kind of intermingled, justification and sanctification. And so I think the reason they're intermingled is because, especially in America, the prevailing view, as far as I can tell, is that justification and sanctification happen simultaneously. So you're sanctified at the moment you're justified. So just to clarify again, justification being the moment you're saved, acceptance of Christ, your initial act of faith is generally what people would say constitutes your justification. And then your sanctification is the cleansing of you, the circumcision of your heart. So the, the Protestants will generally say, yes, justification, sanctification happens simultaneously. Now this is a difference because Catholics would say, that sanctification needs to happen prior to justification. This is sort of why the Protestants and the Catholics can't really be reconciled. The Catholics would say you need to undergo sanctification, cleansing yourself and becoming holy, and then you'll be saved. So the problem became, well, why, what if somebody dies prior to becoming clean? So then, that's where the idea of purgatory came from, presumably. You undergo, you continue your purification process after death. Now, I have no opinion either way on, on purgatory. I'm not going to claim that it's biblical. I've heard some reasonable arguments that you can find allusions to it in there. But mainly it's going to be traditional anyway. I don't. They're, they're not really going to rely on the Bible. They're going to rely on the traditional authority of the Catholic Church, which is... That's fine. The Protestant view is that Scripture is the ultimate authority. We rely much less on tradition. So, John Wesley took a bit of a different view from the normal Protestants who said, who had rejected sanctification prior to justification, and had, at least many of them, lumped the two together. He said, no, you're justified and then you get sanctified. You'll be clean, you'll be cleansed through the rest of your life. You'll undergo this process of sanctification. 
And I, th the reason for this was because he saw an issue. He saw an issue in the Christian church where, and it's an issue that we see today, where this idea of salvation has led people to more or less give up on the idea that they need to undergo further um, sanctification and cleansing because they're already saved and they're sanctified. And I, th I, think it, I think it raises an interesting idea is if your soul is truly sanctified, you have circumcision of the heart, that means that the law is written in your heart as Jeremiah prophesied. That means you love the law the same way the psalmists love the law. And if you're continuing to willingly sin, willfully sin, are you, do you have the law written in your heart? Do you love the law? The law being the, the royal law. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But on the royal law, all other laws have, have stemmed. Right? The Jews would say 613 commandments came from the ten. Christ would say the ten came from the two. Love the Lord God with all your heart and mind, soul and um, strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And then James would say that the royal law is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I think that we could conclude that the proper way to love your neighbor, it can't be done if you don't have love for God in your heart. So, we've taken all 613 commandments, reduced them to 10, reduced them to 2, reduced them to even 1. But... If we are continuing to go ahead and sin, if we're continuing to go ahead and do things that God said, these are no good, these will lead you to violating the law, right? If you go ahead and you commit fornication, then you're going to be, you're going to be led to lust, right? You're going to be led to lust and it's going to cause you to violate this royal law. And you can see why, right? If you're committing fornication, then you're lusting after somebody. You're reducing them from what they are, which is an image of God, into an object that you're using for your pleasure. And that's certainly got to be a violation of this idea that we love our neighbor as ourselves. If you want to love your neighbor as yourself, you really got to recognize that they are an image of God. And once you recognize that, you can see there's an issue. So, the, the, the problem came, and I think still comes, when people get this idea that the change of heart has happened somewhere in the background. Sure, my heart's been changed, my heart's been circumcised, I love my neighbor as myself, I've been cleansed. Christ cleansed me of my sins, I've been sanctified and justified. And then it doesn't manifest at all. Their day-to-day -day views of people don't change. Their day-to-day -day actions don't change. You can say, well, I'm not justified by works. Right, right, right. But it's not the works that are justifying you. Nobody's saying that. But if you have the Spirit in you, and it's not overflowing and being made manifest in the rest of your life, in how you interact with everybody else, maybe it's possible. You don't have the Spirit in you as much as you thought. And herein is where... This necessity, 
for holiness comes in. And I think that that's sort of the essence of it. That's sort of the essence of, of Wesley's view with obviously I took some, some liberalities and interpretations. So now as far as what, what came out of the holiness movement, right? So the, the Methodists emerged from the Anglicans. Now this is, this is something I want to know. This it's, it's interesting. The Anglicans are sort of the intermediary between the, the extremes as they viewed it, the Catholics and the Protestants. The Anglicans are the intermediary. And I've even heard there's the high Anglicans, which are closer to Catholicism and tradition, and the lower Anglicans, which are closer to the Protestants as far as tradition goes. They have a, less of a necessity for tradition. Now, the Anglicans, are the, that's the Church of England, and then they have the American branch, which is the Episcopalians. And from the Episcopalians and the Anglicans came the Wesleyan movement, which became the Methodist Church. And from the Methodists came the Nazarenes and the Wesleyans. I'm a member of the Nazarene Church. So that that's that's sort of the origin there. So when when you're if you're a Methodist, if you're a Wesleyan, if you're a Nazarene it's important to understand Wesley's view and then we need to stop and we need to recognize that we did come from the Anglicans and what the Anglicans goal was was to be this middle ground this uniting force because as Paul says is Christ divided we're not meant to be divided so there's no room for Catholic hate because they believe that sanctification happens prior to justification and Protestants believe they happen at the same time or they happen in the opposite order. There's no room for saying they're wicked and evil. Likewise, there's no room for saying that fundamentalists are no good. The church is meant to be united. And this was the goal of the Anglicans. And it's in turn the goal of the Wesleyans. Now, does, does this mean that we can't have theological debates? No, of course not. I mean... There's always going to be debates, even within. Now, now a lot is made of uh, something like papal authority, but even within the Catholic Church, there's debates. They have the High Council. They have all of these different meetings. They have theology. I mean, you can watch if you go and watch on YouTube, you'll see disagreements between Catholic priests and other Catholic priests, very publicly, because that, that stuff's allowed. The the papal authority is to kind of act as a mediator, Bishop Robert Barron would call him eh, more like an umpire, a final decision maker saying, hey guys, cut the debate out, here's the final decision. But he doesn't do that very often. It's not that everything he says is scripture now. It's when he sits on the seat, he gets to act as the, the umpire. So debates are fine. But don't forget that you're talking about other Christians here. Now, problems arise when people question how seriously you take the Bible. Sure. If, if you have a very literalist, fundamentalist viewpoint, and you think that somebody who takes the Bible as a different kind of truth that is transcending historical and scientific truth is different, it's of a higher value, and you think that that's not serious, well, I can see why 
for the salvation of their soul, you would say, hey, guys, you got to take this all very seriously. But something else to consider is, well, can you still have faith in Christ without having the literal viewpoint? I believe that you probably could. But I could see where a fundamentalist might make an argument. Well, you can't have faith in somebody you don't know. And you need to know him through the scriptures. And if you don't believe in the inerrancy of the scripture, for example, inerrant in the literal, historical, scientific sense, well then, you don't know or believe in Jesus. I, okay, that's fair. That's fair. I don't agree with it, but that's fair. So with that, I want to get into what do the Wesleyans believe? What does John Wesley believe? about the authority of scripture and so I think it's a useful method of understanding scripture. The Wesleyan take on scripture is that it is sort of a salvation history. I'm getting these words from the book An Introduction to Wesleyan Theology. Wesleyans are not fundamentalists in their understanding of scripture, but that doesn't mean they don't take it seriously, guys. They understand it as everything you need to be saved all that you would need is contained here you don't need to look outside of it so if you're trying to understand some traditional idea it's got to have some basis in scripture now there's room for interpretation there's room for understanding but it's got to have a basis in scripture but that doesn't mean scripture is taken with historical and scientific accuracy. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's not. There's some scholars that would take it that way, and there's certainly some parts that would take it that way, that or that should be taken that way. Bishop Robert Barron, when he, he has a very good analogy, he's a Catholic, Catholic, Catholic bishop. He says, well, when somebody asks me, do I take the Bible as inerrant? I say, well, which part? There's 66 books. It's not one book. It's a library of books. Some parts are written historically. Some parts are prophetic. Some parts are poetic. So which part? Now, I think that the, the, the value of this Wesleyan view is that you're not, you're not necessarily denying that historical events happened, right? We, we, most historians would agree that there was an exile of the Jews, or multiple. But you're not bound up on it, because that's not the important question. The important question is, does this reveal the nature of God? And the Wesleyans say, yes. All other facts within the Bible outside of that are secondary and ultimately not necessary. We need to understand the nature of God. And that is how we are meant to take the Bible, as a, as, as a method and a path to salvation. And so, whether it's historical, or metaphorical, or as scholars would say, it's a text that occurred under a pseudonym and was edited over many generations into the final product we see today. Did the Holy Spirit move through that process and give us something that is of value to our salvation and will lead us to salvation if so well then it's true it's true in a higher sense now i don't i don't want to suggest to you that the entire bible is metaphor that's not my belief it wouldn't be 
it, w it wouldn't be accurate historically to say that. But I think there is a value. If you're going through your first reading of the Bible, I think you'll have a better time understanding it if you read the whole darn thing as metaphor your first time. Now that then come back later on and uh, say, well, what, what, what was historical? What's the literary style here? What, how am I supposed to understand this? But read the whole darn thing as metaphor at first. And you'll gain a lot more from it than if you go into and say, all right, I'm taking this as a literal and scientific representation of the world. And then if you do that and you're a modern person who has some sort of reverence and inclination towards science, you're going to have to make a concession somewhere. Whether the concession is in your view on the authority of science or you adopt some very unorthodox view of, um, of scientific interpretations or you just make a concession in your faith and say, hmm, well, some of the Bible is just an outright lie. None of those are good. None of those are worthwhile. Science is not in opposition to the Bible. I mean, the really, this is not uh, a very... This is not the traditional understanding of Scripture. There is plenty, go back hundreds of years, plenty of Christian scientists. And they never saw it as an issue because they saw the Bible as representing spiritual truths, transcendent truths. The universe and science was never going to be in conflict with it. There's no fear to be found in science because science is doing nothing but glorifying and understanding God's creation. So this is the value of the Wesleyan view of Scripture. The Wesleyan view of Scripture is not bound by these petty arguments. If you want to believe that as a fundamentalist, that's fine. That's, that's for you. If you don't want to believe that, that's okay. As long as we all accept that this is revealing the true nature of God, and can lead us to salvation. We're all good. This is sort of the, I, I would say, probably the ideal approach if we're looking to unify anything. This is the, I mean, the C.S. Lewis, mere Christianity approach. We're all Christian. We don't all agree on how salvation works, but we agree that by some process, our souls are saved by Christ and his crucifixion and resurrection. We agree generally on the moral doctrine. We agree that Christ died for us. You know, we agree that there is a transcendent, invisible God who is most high above all other gods. Okay, so that is the value of the understanding of Scripture. Now, this, this idea is grounded in what's called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral which I think is a very, very important and useful tool if we're trying to um, understand how to integrate some new idea into our lives. And if we really want to understand where the ideas of the Wesleyans would come from, I think it's, it's very useful. It's helped me quite a bit. So the Wesleyan Quadrilateral consists of four things. Scripture, tradition, reason, experience. Tradition, reason, and experience are contained within Scripture. Scripture is the ultimate authority. 
It's tradition, reason, experience that help us to understand Scripture. So tradition being things like the sacraments would be a tradition. Okay, you might reject the sacraments. Do you reject the Trinity? Because the Trinity is a tradition too. You can say it's self-evident in the Bible, but it is not self-evident. Otherwise, the early church, well, very relatively early church, wouldn't have accepted modalism as, as their primary doctrine for the nature of Christ. The Trinitarian viewpoint was a traditional viewpoint. As a matter of fact, when we say Scripture only, what Scripture? You mean the Scripture that was collated by the traditions of the Catholic Church? And, and granted, we did get rid of some books. Martin Luther actually wanted to get rid of more books. Martin Luther wanted to get rid of James, for example. He thought it was written by a Jew who never met a Christian. But... We didn't add books. We have a traditional view on what scripture is. And we say, well, it was led by the Holy Spirit. But at some point, the Holy Spirit was not present in the decisions of this tradition. Okay, fine. But don't say there's nothing of value to be gained from tradition. You can critique tradition. But don't say there's nothing of value there. Because then you'll undermine your own view of scripture. And you'll undermine your own view of the nature of Christ. Okay, so we can take tradition and make you can make use of it. The sacraments, you know, baptism. That's a great sacrament. Most everybody does that. Now that is based in scripture pretty explicitly, right? But it is we take these sacraments like the baptism or the Eucharist. And we can make use of them. You, you, you could have a couple different views on what the Eucharist actually is, but you can make use of it. And if you do all things to glorify God, you'll be okay. You can have a differing view on what the meaning of the sacraments is, or you can say, well, the sacraments aren't necessary because it's all about faith or what have you. But don't, don't tell me there's no value. There's got to be. There's value there. There's value in anything you do to glorify God. So if you're doing a sacrament to glorify God, it's good. If you're doing a sacrament to not glorify God, it's no good. Right? So we can make use of tradition. Okay. So reason. The Wesleyan view would throw something like science and philosophy under reason. Science would be under there. So there's a new scientific discovery. There's a new historical discovery. We learn something. Right, we understand now that the universe is probably not 6,000 years old. Well then, through this new discovery, we can use reason to update tradition. Okay? In experience, that comes in when we, we start moving forward and we see the way tradition and reason are impacting the church. And we can go and update as we see some some old concept or argument fall through or become detrimental or useless our experience tells us okay that's no good we can go and update the traditions so we have the traditions and then through reason we're modifying the traditions through experience we're modifying both the reason and traditions and 
but we're going back and correcting the traditions and form it and editing them so they become new traditions. And we have a tradition that's closer to something that we think Christ would have liked. So I've called it a self-correcting system. I think it's very, very useful, especially within the bounds of Scripture. Okay, so we've covered holiness, we've covered the authority of Scripture, we've covered the quadrilateral. This, I think, is the core of John Wesley's theology. I think it's a very, very good theology. I think that he's a really, really bright and useful and pious theologian. I think that his theology is worth exploring. I think that the unity of the church is worth pursuing. And I think that we can get there. I think a good place to start would actually probably not be with John Wesley. A good place to start would be with C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity. But if we can move past the sort of the, the, the in-the-weeds arguments, move past the how do you look at the, do you take the Bible seriously enough? Move past the proof texting and all these things and say, what is it that we want to understand about God's nature? What is it? How are we supposed to be? I don't need to hear about how trying to do good things would be works and we're not justified by works. Fantastic. Does that mean that I probably shouldn't do works? Does that mean the apostles didn't do good works? Well, no, of course not. I don't need to hear that I'm already saved to know that my heart is probably in, could use some even further modification. There's no harm in me seeking for God to come and cleanse me further. There's no harm in seeking the, the brotherhood and camaraderie and sisterhood of other Christians. These are all good things. Christ is not divided. And we shouldn't be divided under Christ. This is what the holiness movement wanted to pursue. This is the nature of the church. And John Wesley wanted to resurrect the nature of the church. The church that Paul and the other apostles started. And so, I hope that we can all gain something from this theology, this understanding, it's hope that we can all pursue unity and pursue Christ together because it's not meant to be a solo journey. This is a trap I've fallen into quite a bit. It's not meant to be a solo journey. And there's things that you can be gained beyond individual education. I understand and trust me, I can relate to the idea that a church might not be for you and I can understand and relate to the idea that you don't need to go to church Yada yada, don't, but there's benefit to it. Right? Paul tells us all things are lawful unto me, but not all things are expedient. Do things that are expedient. Do things that are going to enrich your soul and enrich your relationship with Christ, regardless of whether or not they're necessary. Pursue the expedient, pursue Christ.
pursue the Lord. God bless you.